This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin ACLU is calling the recent arrest of a local activist unconstitutional. That's after Jessica Williams, an activist with local group Freedom Incorporated, was arrested outside the Dane County Courthouse earlier this month for allegedly shouting at Dane County DA Ishmael Ozan. She was arrested after a sentencing hearing for Kenyara Gadsen, a black transgender woman who was sentenced to 13 years in prison for a fatal shooting in downtown Madison. Gadsen and supporters maintained she was acting in self-defense. Williams was held for four days, but no charges have been filed against her, and spokesperson for DA Ozan says his office isn't handling the case. State Representative Francesca Hong likened Williams's arrest to that of a political prisoner. Freedom Incorporated characterized the incident as a gross abuse of power, and ACLU of Wisconsin President William Sultan told a crowd on Friday protesting the arrest, quote, We should not allow government officials to say, arrest this person, arrest that person, because they said something I don't like, unquote. The University of Wisconsin-Madison has a new chancellor. The Cap Times reports that Jennifer Mnookin has been named Chancellor of UW-Madison and will assume the position starting on June 1st. Mnookin was previously the dean of the UCLA Law School as part of her 23 years of experience working at public universities. Republican Governor candidate Rebecca Clayfish describes the Board of Regents' decision to hire Mnookin as, quote, infuriating, unquote. Clayfish believes that universities should not be, quote, force-feeding liberal ideology to Wisconsin students, end quote, according to a press release from earlier today. Mnookin will replace Rebecca Blank, who is set to become the president of Northwestern University. Madison Alder Arvina Martin will be the third Alder to resign from the Madison Common Council in recent weeks. The Westside Alder announced her resignation from the Madison Common Council last Friday. It will take effect next Wednesday. The District 11 Alder was first elected back in 2017 and then re-elected in 2019 and 2021. And in that time, Martin has served on 10 committees and was Common Council Vice President for one year. The news comes after two Alders stepped down in recent weeks. Christian Albarazes resigned after an impending plan to move out of his district, while Alder Lindsay Lemmer stepped away to pursue a senior position at her day job. Hundreds of Madison-area high school students took to the Capitol Rotunda on Friday to rally for abortion rights. The Cap Times reported on this in addition to a rally on Saturday on the Capitol steps organized by Planned Parenthood. These protests followed the leak of a U.S. Supreme Court opinion which, if followed, would overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision which established the constitutional right to an abortion. Participants pushed for the state to repeal a 170-year-old statewide abortion ban which would immediately take effect if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And now, on to today's top stories. The city of Madison has been trying to cut red tape for accessory dwelling units, or ADUs. Now, the city is offering a new program to help homeowners get funding to start building their own backyard cottages. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. They're called accessory dwelling units, or ADUs. 
small housing units built on the same property of an existing home. The small flats are also sometimes called granny flats or backyard cottages and are only allowed on properties that have a single-family home. ADUs have been allowed in Madison for almost a decade, but until recently, homeowners had to get special approval from the city. Last December, the city streamlined that approval process. Lynette Rhodes is a grants supervisor with the city's development department. She says that despite cutting red tape, residents are still facing barriers to try and build their own granny flats. So um, we have um, gotten uh, more interest from individuals um, wanting to build uh, granny flats and accessory dwelling units. Um, One of the barriers that we heard from some individuals is the lack of available financing um, to kind of start the construction process. Enter the Backyard Homes Project. It's a loan program to help a handful of Madison homeowners build their own backyard cottage. The project will supply a small number of homeowners with low-interest city loans to help with construction, labor costs, or solar panels. These loans are not intended to cover the full cost of the ADU, and they can't be used for landscaping, furniture, or appliances. They're intended to help kickstart homeowners to begin the project. Um, We are going to offer the financing as an installment loan with a very low interest rate of 2%. Um, But it gives people the opportunity to, um, you know, if they're, especially if they're facing barriers in the normal private market, um, access to some type of funding in order to start that construction. The city has budgeted $400,000 for the program, enough to cover around five to seven ADUs. The max loan that someone can apply for is $130,000. The cost to actually build an ADU can vary greatly depending on whether it is built within the house itself or if it's built as an addition. And so we have seen prices anywhere from $100,000 if someone was building um, within their own housing unit um, up to maybe, you know, 230000 it, it really all depends on the design um, that someone is going with. And um, so we're, we're definitely using this as an opportunity to collect information as well as we are providing these loans um, to see what the average costs are um, in our community. There are still some restrictions as to who can build ADUs. The ADUs must be built on the property of a single-family home and can be a maximum of 900 square feet with a maximum of two bedrooms. The loans are available on a first-come, first-served basis. Applications are available on the city's Department of Planning and Community and Economic Development website under the Home Loans tab. The Backyard Homes Project comes as Madison continues to struggle with housing. Late last year, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway added ADUs to her Housing Forward plan to help find new ways to increase housing in Madison. It is estimated that the city could see 70,000 new residents by 2040. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. A proposed reroute of the Enbridge Line 5 gas pipeline in northern Wisconsin was designed to circumnavigate tribal territory, but critics believe the reroute still poses risks to traditional Ojibwe agriculture. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Enbridge is seeking to reroute a portion of its Line 5 around the Bad River Band's territory in northern Wisconsin. The reroute falls within the tribe's watershed, and tribal advocates say this poses risks to tribal farming traditions. Aurora Conley, a member of the Bad River Ojibwe and the Anishinaabe Environmental Protection Alliance, says the potential environmental fallout could be disastrous for the region's wild rice fields. She explains wild rice, or manumen, is more than an agricultural commodity to the tribe. This is why we migrated to this area. We were told to 
keep going until we find the food that grows on water, hence being the wild rice. It's our job to take care of the rice. We were told if we could take care of the rice that we would survive, and we have. According to the National Wildlife Federation, Line 5, which currently crosses the tribe's land, leaked 29 times from 1968 to 2017. A company spokesperson says an estimated $46 million will be spent with native-owned businesses and communities for the reroute, and the project is undergoing reviews by state and federal regulators. The integrity of those reviews has been questioned by tribal leaders and environmental groups. Last month, more than 200 organizations submitted a letter urging the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to halt new construction on Line 5, including updates outside of Wisconsin, and to conduct a top-down environmental impact statement. Osprey Oriel Lake signed the letter with the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network International. She notes the Biden-Harris administration made campaign promises to begin divesting the nation from fossil fuel. This struggle to stop Line 5 Uh, we think is really vital to protect Indigenous rights and protect Indigenous cultural lifeways and also to protect the water for all of us and the climate for all of us. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources conducted its own draft environmental impact statement for the Wisconsin reroute, which received more than 10,000 written comments. Among other issues, Conley says the document doesn't consider the cultural and historical importance of rice to the Ojibwe and how damaging the crop would be a direct strike at their cultural identity. You, you can't commodify love. That rice represents a gift of love from a spiritual essence that was given to us. And it's been our duty since the beginning of time to take care of that. According to the DNR, northern Wisconsin's wild rice fields can produce more than 500 pounds of seed per acre and are an important source of food and shelter for native and migratory wildlife. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. current time right now is 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Madison's Golf Enterprise Program has been in debt for most of the past 20 years and is struggling to keep public golf courses in Madison running and in beautiful shape. But this could change, as a much-needed boost is potentially coming from the sale of 18 holes to the county. To find out more, WORT reporter Cameron Costanzo spoke with, spoke with Lisa Lassinger with the city's Parks Department to learn more about the state of golf in Madison. Last week, Madison Common Council approved the sale of 18 holes of the Yahara Hills Golf Course to Dane County for use as a future landfill, compost site, and sustainable business park. The proceeds of the sale, about $5.5 million, will go to the city's Golf Enterprise Program, a government fund intended to be self-supporting through fees it collects in exchange for goods and services. 
Lisa Lashinger is the assistant superintendent for the Parks Division of Madison. The Parks Division manages the four public golf courses in Madison, as well as the Golf Enterprise Program. To start off, can you describe how the Yahara Hills Golf Course will change as a result of this sale to the county? Absolutely. Um, there, will, there won't be any immediate changes um, to the play, especially not through 2022, but we will have the ability, the city will have the ability to lease the course back, um, the 18 holes that are, are being sold with this land sale, uh, through 2024. And then through 2025, we'd have the ability to operate still a 27-hole operation. From 2026 and beyond, we'll have the ability to operate an 18-hole golf course at Yahara for, through at least 2042. So for the next 20 years from now, there will be at least 18 holes of golf at Yahara. So how will golf at Yahara Hills change kind of from a golfer's perspective? From a golfer's perspective, there won't be 36 holes available. There will be 18 holes a bit available at, from 2026 and beyond. Um, but the land sale does give us an opportunity that we don't have right now. As a golf enterprise program, uh, the program is expected to be fully self-sufficient financially. So there hasn't been any capital investment in the courses for approximately 20 years. So the courses, all four of them have fallen into some level of disrepair. So the proceeds from this land sale allow us to begin implementing the recommendations from the Task Force on Municipal Golf um, by investing, uh, making capital improvements in the courses using the proceeds from that sale. So our plan is to have 18 improved holes of golf at Yahara that are, are good quality playable holes that are available for, for at least the next 20 years and hopefully beyond. Um, it also allows us to invest in, in various parts of our other courses. That, that $5.5 million isn't enough for us to take care of all of our capital needs, but it certainly is a good start for us. Can you get into some of the specifics of the capital need? We did, as we were going through the, the task force on municipal golf, we had done a number of capital needs assessments, and just being on the courses, our, our, our team is very familiar with the work that needs to happen. But generally... Um, our irrigation systems are needing repair. Uh, our greens, tees, and fairways always need upkeep, but we do have a number of drainage issues on the courses, on, on Yahara in particular, but also on one, one hole, especially at Odana, that need to be addressed. Um, we also are, need to work towards alternative land management strategies and really work to improve our, our urban forest within the golf courses. That's something that we haven't been able to do. We're also looking to really establish and maintain more natural areas within the golf course, so still having golf coexist with some areas that are biodiverse, that are good pollinator protection habitat and for other wildlife. So those are some of the key areas that we're looking to and key improvements that we're looking to make on the golf courses. Had this sale not come along and this $5.5 million, how was the Parks Division planning on managing these capital improvements? That's really a policymaker type of question um, because the capital budget is controlled by our policymakers. Um, and for the last 20 years or so, we haven't been able to use capital funds to invest in the golf courses. So 
Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work that we that we've been able to do recently over the last year at Glenway, but that work would not have happened if it weren't for private uh, sponsorship and donations to the golf course. So um, that, that's one way that we've been able to make some improvements, but beyond that, our ability to invest in the courses has been very limited. Um, we were very um, financially successful uh, over the last two years uh, at in the golf program, but there's no guarantee that that would continue. If it were to continue, that would certainly be a way for us to start to invest, but definitely not to the level that we need to. These capital improvements that are being planned wouldn't have been able to happen without the money from this sale, correct? Correct. Can you break down why the city restricts the amount of money that the golf courses can use for capital improvements? Like when when the golf enterprise program pulls money from the general fund, what is that money allowed to be used for? So the the golf enterprise itself is set up to be fully self-sufficient. It was a decision made by policymakers and golfers, I understand, back in the 80s. It's not meant to really pull any funding from the general fund. Uh, The only reason that golf has taken money from the general fund in the last um, five years has been the to repay debt. Our fi- financial performance over the last decade uh, within golf has, has not been good. Um, and at the end of 2018 and 2019, after two very wet years um, and extreme market competition, along with a number of other factors, we found ourselves in a pretty significant debt. Um, so at that point, the, the council did authorize a loan for the golf enterprise program. Um, this, this land sale does allow us to fully pay off that loan. Uh, we have about $700,000 in debt remaining. The land sale allows us to pay that off. But really, that's, that's the extent of our general fund support from the, the city. The golf program is meant to cover all of our expenses um, and all of, through the revenue that's generated on the golf courses. So in 2019, the city created a task force to advise the golf enterprise program. It found the city's golf courses needed vast capital improvements to continue. What changes has the Parks Division made in the past few years as a result of that study? The final report from the um, task force on municipal golf was issued at the, it was adopted by council in early 2021. Um, So that's really not all that long ago, it was a little over a year ago. Um, that report included 10 recommendations. And since that time, um, we were approached by a private donor, Michael and Jocelyn Kaiser, um, to improve the Glenway Golf Course. That generous gift from the Kaisers has allowed us to implement over half of the recommendations from the Task Force on Municipal Golf. That work serves as a model for us to be able to make improvements on our other golf courses. That That's the most significant progress that we've made on the implementing the, the recommendations. So through that project, we worked with various teams. We worked with the OJ Noor turf grass facility to look at different species of turf that would work best, that would minimize inputs onto the golf courses which was one of the recommendations. We also, one of the, the, another one of the recommendations was to um, improve biodiversity 
on the courses. So that Glenway project alone increased native planting areas by, I believe our last figure was 1,500%. Um, there were 28,000 plugs and many, many uh, seeds planted through late last fall and this spring to really increase the biodiversity on the course. And another significant thing we've done with that project is we've rebranded the golf course to be a golf park. So there we're introducing additional recreational uses to the course during the normal golf season, which is something that's pretty well unheard of. But one of the recommendations from the task force was clearly to make the courses more welcoming for everybody, whether they're golfers or non-golfers, but to to allow them to feel more welcome, to allow the, the broader community to feel welcome on the golf courses. Um, and then another recommendation from the, the task force was to invest in the capital needs of the course without impacting the rest of the, the parks division's needs. And that's certainly a recommendation that we've implemented through the Glenway project. They also wanted to make sure that there was golf available at Yahara to some extent because they heard loud and clear that our, our golfers of color felt that that was the course that they preferred most. They, they felt more welcome at, at, the, uh, at Yahara. So the task force wanted to make sure that there was still some level of play preserved at Yahara. And yes, in terms of like the longevity of this fund and golf courses in Madison, how do you see it? Do you, do you project it being able to sustain itself for a long time, or do you think it needs some kind of structural change? I think the work at Glenway and the improvements that we're going to be able to make because of the land sale at Yahara are going to give the golf enterprise program, the golf municipal golf within the city of Madison, a better opportunity to thrive over the, the coming decades. Um, and that's in part because we're really anticipating that this work is going to generate a sense of greater wealth, inclusivity and accessibility within the courses and give more people within the community an opportunity to use and see value in the courses than what has been historically allowed or felt. Um, and that's because the courses have been primarily one purpose, and that was for golf, except for in the winter when snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, and walking is allowed. The county board will vote to approve the sale on their end this Thursday. I've been speaking with Lisa Lashinger, Assistant Superintendent for the Parks Division here in Madison. Lisa, thanks for talking with me. Thank you, Cameron. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News right here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. State and federal lawmakers meet in Madison to demand the protection of abortion rights. Bridging the Gap heads to the movies to learn how generational trauma affects kids and two new movie reviews. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
The time now is 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks so much for joining us. On Saturday, hundreds of people gathered at the steps of the state capitol to demand that state and federal lawmakers codify Roe v. Wade and protect abortion rights in Wisconsin. WORT reporter Zoe Sullivan went to Saturday's rally to hear from representatives about their thoughts on the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. All the audio for the story was provided by Zoe Sullivan. The first speaker is U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin, followed by State Senator Melissa Agard. stand with all of you. I'm so proud to stand with the majority of Wisconsinites who support a person's constitutional right to an abortion and to make their own personal decisions about their health care, their family, and their body. And if you're, if you're here today, then there's really a good chance that, like me, you're feeling and angry about the Supreme Court turning the clock back on our rights. Yeah. Yeah. And you might also be feeling exhausted, yeah. discouraged, yes. and hopeless. And that's okay. Know that you are not alone. But I feel all those things, but I also feel a determination. And a fight in me in all of you, we are in this fight together. While we all suspected this ruling could come from an activist Supreme Court, it did not make the disgraceful news we got 10 days ago any easier. The Supreme Court is trying to legislate from the bench. And for the first time in our nation's history, it is poised to strip away a constitutional right. And as Governor Evers talked about in Wisconsin, if Roe is overturned, a law that passed in 1849 would go back into effect that bans Wisconsin doctors from performing abortions in almost all circumstances. That is precisely the problem with overturning Roe and returning this issue to the states. Politicians can interfere with a woman's access to health care, and people's rights will be different depending on where they live. And that's not how rights, especially constitutional rights, are supposed to work. I truly don't want to take women back to the Wisconsin of 1849. I don't want to take rights away from victims of rape and incest. I don't want to leave this generation of women with fewer rights than their mothers and grandmothers had for decades. I want to rights 
Rome became the law of the land.
when they want to create their own families. There has long been popular resistance to police brutality against working class people. In London, even in their early days, the police were unpopular. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story of people power in 1833. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Yesterday, May 15th, marks the day in 1833 when a London jury ruled that the death of a police officer during a demonstration was justifiable homicide. Protesters were not held responsible. London's newly formed unpopular Metropolitan Police had violently attacked a demonstration of the National Union of the Working Classes, NUWC, a London-based group of trade unionists. The NUWC thought winning the vote for working men would bring about economic equality. They saw class as fundamental. The NUWC was strongest in London, but there its support came mainly from artisans, who formed the backbone of local reform and radical movements. The NUWC had about 3,000 supporters, but more influence than this would suggest because their papers, like the Poor Man's Guardian, were widely read. From 1831 to 1833, the NUWC held weekly meetings and heated debates. Members disagreed on the definition of class, what strategy and tactics to use, and whether to align with middle-class reformers or the more progressive wing of the Whig Party. By May 1833, the country had seen intense campaigning, riots, and abortive attempts to gather and launch armed revolts over these issues. But splits weakened the NUWC and many moderates left. Rounds of failed legislation had not yet expanded voting rights and some may have sensed it would not include the lower classes when it came. The NUWC planned the Convention of the People that scared the British upper classes, who saw overtones of the most radical phase of the French Revolution. Separately, NUWC organized a rally on May 13th. Some saw it as a first step toward a revolutionary seizure of power, unrealistically proposing to seize the Bank of England and the Tower of London. After the rally was banned, Many NUWC supporters decided not to come, but several thousand still attended the rally, and when the chairman had barely begun to speak, thousands of police advanced on the rally. The Gentleman's Magazine said the police completely surrounded the actors and spectators of the scene, commenced a general and indiscriminate attack on the populace, inflicting broken heads alike on those who stood and parlayed and those who endeavored to retreat. New Bell's Weekly Messenger also writes of the police attack. The police came on and used staves pretty freely. Many heads were broken. During the assault, three policemen were stabbed and one died. George Fursey was tried for the murder of Robert Cully and for wounding another officer. The jury returned a verdict of not guilty. 
Next, there came an inquest into Robert Culley's death. The jury of 17 men consisted largely of neighborhood bakers. The coroner called for a verdict of willful murder. The jury said in their verdict, We find a verdict of justifiable homicide on these grounds, that no riot act was read, nor any statement advising people to disperse, that the government did not take proper precautions to prevent the meeting from assembling, and we moreover express our anxious hope that the government will in the future take better precautions in the metropolis. It seems the jury felt the demonstrators were deliberately penned in and ambushed by the police. Again the coroner protested, locking the jury room to try to get them to change their mind, but they stayed firm. As the foreman put it, Mr. Coroner, we are firmly of the opinion that if they, the police, had acted in moderation, the deceased would not have been stabbed. Local people victoriously held torchlight processions honoring the jurors. A year later, the community assembled for free food and drink. The jurors were honored, and the foreman of the jury was given a pewter mug with the inscription as a perpetual memorial of their glorious verdict of justifiable homicide on the body of Robert Culley, a policeman who was slain while brutally attacking the people when peacefully assembled in Calthorpe Street on 13th of May, 1833. However, the attack spelled the end of the NUWC, but its influence contributed to the Charterist movement that eventually led to reforms of universal male suffrage and other changes. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This week on Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen discusses the Pixar animation Turning Red and its approach on generational trauma. Turning Red was released on Disney Plus on February 21, 2022. This is Pixar Studios' first animation starring an Asian lead with a storyline centered around the modern Asian-Canadian experience. The movie received raving reviews with audience members relating to the storyline, especially AAPI audience members who enjoyed seeing representation on screen. The story touched on generational trauma, leading many to reflect on their relationship with their parents or children. The movie sparked conversations about healing wounds that were caused in the parent-child relationship and having tough conversations with their parents. This is Bridging the Gap a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. The plot of Turning Red focuses on Mei Lin, a 13-year-old girl who was an overachiever in school. She prides herself on being academically successful, well-rounded, and a good, obedient daughter to her mother, Ming. When she does things that she feel would bring shame to her mom, she suppresses those emotions and focuses on being the perfect daughter. 
Ming is overprotective of Mei and would often go to extremes to protect her daughter from what she deems would corrupt her perfect child, leaving Mei feeling utterly embarrassed. One morning, Mei wakes up and finds that she has turned into a huge red panda. Whenever she feels intense emotions, she would turn into a red panda. Apparently, this is a trait that is passed down to the daughters of the family from ancient times, and the only way to stop it is to perform a ritual during a red mood to lock away the panda spirit forever. During the course of the movie, Mei was initially embarrassed by becoming a red panda. To her surprise, her friends were very accepting of her red panda, and so were people from her school. This initiates a change in Mei's mentality towards her strong emotions. Instead of suppressing her emotions to portray the perfect daughter, she's allowing herself to feel those emotions, knowing that this version of herself is accepted. When the time came for the ritual, Mei decides to go against her family's wishes and embrace the red panda instead of locking it away. This causes a great stir amongst her family, especially Ming and her grandmother, leading Ming to ultimately break down and release her inner red panda as well. When faced with her mother's red panda, Mei had to gather the help of her friends and family to get Ming to lock away her red panda. In the process, Mei sees Ming as a teen, crestfallen after having hurt her mother when she lashed out as a red panda. Mei sees how Ming has tried to be the perfect daughter but suppressed her emotions so much that eventually ended up hurting her own mother. Ming apologizes for being so hard on Mei and locks her red panda away. After much reflection, however, Mei still decides to keep her red panda but lets Ming know that she needs to be who she is and not who Ming wants her to be. The movie emphasizes a couple of important issues. First, implicit trauma can be inflicted even when you have the best intentions. Ming was never a negligent mother, nor was she ever violent or harsh towards Mei. Instead, she had a great relationship with Mei and cared a lot for her. The two spent a lot of time together, and Mei took pride that she didn't let her mom down, but that also caused her to suppress her other desires, such as hanging out with friends or liking boys. This brings us to the second point. Mei's red panda receiving love and support from her friends and classmates allowed Mei to step out of the shame she was feeling about having those desires, leading her to embrace the panda during the ritual instead of breaking out of it. She pondered whether the red panda was inherently bad, or was locking away the free-spirited part of herself just her being obedient once more. Lastly, we see that Ming had also struggled with her suppressed emotions when she was young, and the outburst that her red panda caused created physical and mental harm between her and her mother. Seeing that cycle of how Ming had to hide her emotions and the damage it caused, Mei decides to break the cycle by coexisting with her red panda. She's allowing herself to express her emotions, control them, and communicate those feelings with her mother. Turning red perfectly demonstrates transgenerational trauma. According to Psychology Today, transgenerational trauma refers to a type of trauma that does not end with the individual but is instead passed down through generations. Depression, anxiety, and addiction are all common traumas that can get passed down. Some ways to break this cycle of transgenerational traumas is through communication and empathy. In Turning Red, the red panda symbolizes the transgenerational trauma that runs in Mei's family. However, instead of blaming Ming for the trauma she caused, Mei saw what Ming had to go through emotionally. Moreover, Mei and Ming both opened themselves up to communicate with each other, ultimately leading Mei to break the cycle. Turning Red shows us that there is hope in repairing damaged relationships with your parents. Sometimes all we need is to just take a moment to listen. 
For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. Today on the Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two very different movies with crime at their center. A warm-hearted true story about the theft of a portrait from the British Museum in 1961, The Duke, and a Tarantino-style violent, racist, and sexist film, The Gentleman. Will the defendant please stand? Kempton Bunton, you were charged that on the 21st of March 1961... You stole from the National Gallery a priceless portrait of the Duke of Wellington by Francisco Jose de Goya. That was a clip from the trailer for The Duke, the final film of director Roger Mitchell. It's based on a true story about the theft from the British Museum of Goya's Portrait of the Duke of Wellington in 1961. It's the only painting ever stolen from the museum. This is a winning story with a great cast that is incredibly close to what really happened. The story centers on Kempton Bunton, a great British name if ever there was one, played by Jim Broadbent. Bunton is a man of principle, always fighting the good fight, much to the consternation of his family, especially his long-suffering spouse, Dorothy, played by Helen Murren. His only ally seems to be his younger son, Jack Theon Whitehead. One scene shows the two out in a pouring rainstorm under umbrellas petitioning for free TV for seniors and the poor. The government back then charged everyone for a license before they were permitted to watch most channels on the TV. Bunton, true to his principles, does a civil disobedience action, stealing TV, that is, watching it without the required license. He's given several months in prison for his trouble and promptly goes back to his effort when he gets out, much to the frustration of Dorothy. Button then makes the fatal move in the story. He promises to give up his crusade after a three-day trip to London. Dorothy reluctantly agrees. He's soon trying to see if anyone has read his scripts. He's a frustrated writer and eventually takes his protests to Parliament. While he is in London, he stops at the British Museum, viewing the Duke of Wellington portrait he has spent so much time railing against. Bunton told his family that it was wrong for the British government to spend £140,000 about $390,000, on a painting when they should be helping veterans and the poor. The painting is stolen in a scene that was more complicated in real life, and Bunton is soon issuing ransom notes to the British Museum. He wants, you guessed it, £140,000 donated to charity in exchange for its return. Bunton eventually gives back the painting. Again, real life is more interesting and complicated. There's a fun trial scene and a satisfying ending. I would have loved to have had a bigger role for Mirren, but there is one beautiful scene that sums up the relationship between the two when Kempton spontaneously takes her in his arms and they dance as he compares her to Ginger Rogers. Her abrupt smile tells you all you need to know about their relationship. A warm winning film well worth watching. It's showing locally on the big screen, but see it soon. The theaters will fill up with would-be summer blockbusters before you know it. Now for a disappointing film on the small screen. There's only one rule in this jungle. When the lion's hungry, he eats. That was a clip from the trailer for The Gentleman, an over-the-top drug crime film with a fine cast directed by Guy Ritchie. The film features an overly complicated plot soaked in near Tarantino-style violence with a racist, homophobic, and misogynist script 
with a sexual assault thrown in for good measure. Ritchie has done some fun titles in the past, including his first film in 1998, Lock, Stock, and Smoking Barrels, the Sherlock Holmes films with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, the most recent in 2011, but he hasn't done anything enjoyable since then. Matthew McConaughey plays Mickey Pearson, an American expat, making his fortune as a major pot grower and distributor in England. He spent years developing his network and cultivating wealthy landowners, but now he wants out. He wants to retire and enjoy time with his spouse, Rosalind, Michelle Dockery. But selling an illegal operation is complicated. He goes to Matthew, Jeremy Strong, who apparently has an allied business, but to sell Pearson has to reveal certain secrets of his operation, including at least one site as an enticement to buy. Several things go wrong, and it all seems to be documented by a sleazy tabloid journalist, Fletcher. Hugh Grant. Richie seems to think giving Grant a beard and sunglasses somehow makes him creepy, but not so much. Word has gotten out about Pearson's plans, and soon there are other interested parties, including several Asian or British people of Asian descent, which gives rise to some of the racist comments, not to mention a largely black gang. All in all, a disappointing film with too much violence, too convoluted a storyline, and a sad degree of racist, misogynist, homophobic sentiment. Now showing on Netflix, I'd recommend watching something else. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News for Six. Your reporter tonight was Cameron Costanzo. Your scriptwriters for this evening were Emily Flick and Reed Kamai. Special thanks to featured contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Zoe Sullivan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni enjoyed the <laughs> engineered this show. I hope you enjoyed it too. Nate Wuggiehow produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.